Every human being has creativity within, but not everyone feels the call to be an artist. An artist is someone who answers the call to create again and again. And there's beauty and value in that because if to be human is to be creative, who better to learn about creativity than from working artists? I'm your host, Mandy Harmon, a film director, creative marketer, and sometimes with my teeth gritted, consider myself an artist. This is not an interview podcast. Artbreakers is a conversation podcast. Conversing with me in Artbreakers episodes are mostly full-time creative artists of all kinds. Artbreakers aims to share with you the kind of vulnerability that deepens your creative work in meaningful ways, whether or not you identify as an artist. Hi, and welcome back to Artbreakers. In this episode, I chat with Bianca Klein, a director of photography, a mom to three kids, and also a trans woman. Bianca is one of those rare filmmakers that was actually born and raised in Los Angeles. After high school, she moved to Spain for several years and then attended Brigham Young University to study film and photography and even taught a camera class there for a while before eventually moving on. Bianca is best known for her films Murder Among the Mormons, the Peabody-nominated Belly of the Beast, and the upcoming Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which is a stop-motion film that has been getting some great buzz at the Telluride Film Festival, and one I'm super looking forward to watching. I met Bianca on a commercial shoot in 2020, which was a bra ad for the company Third Love. Bianca shot it, Olive Okova directed it, and will probably, hopefully, be a future guest. And it was creative directed by yours truly. With mostly a female cast and crew, it was a pretty magnificent set and not something you see very often in the male-dominated film world. So, good memories. Bianca and I talk about originality, the importance of representation behind and in front of the camera, authenticity in art, and a bit of Bianca's transgender journey as a trans woman who grew up Mormon and as a woman in the film world. Near the end of the episode, Bianca opens up a little bit about how she's recently been dealing with ideas around death and the meaning of life and art, brought on through the death of fellow cinematographer Helena Hutchins, whose accidental shooting on the set of Rust, a western starring Alec Baldwin, made international headlines. Hutchins' death shook the film community, and it also became a complicated, almost poster child tragedy for some of the union issues that the film industry is currently facing, which I have many mixed thoughts about. I'm not one for sensationalism, so we don't go there. Yet Bianca has a unique experience and personal connection to the tragedy, as she worked at the same agency as Helena and interviewed and was considered for the exact same role as the DP of Rust, meaning it genuinely could have been her instead, which is a harrowing thought to face and where that part of the episode focuses. All in all, this episode is a wild ride, so buckle up. You can keep up with Bianca on Instagram at DP, or honestly, just keep an eye on your Netflix and you're bound to see something shot by her. This episode has been one of my favorites I've recorded so far, so without further ado, let's get into it with Bianca Klein, Director of Photography. Welcome, Bianca. Glad you're here. Thank you very much. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about you, you knew you wanted to be a filmmaker ever since you were really young. You grew up in LA and you were born in LA. Not everyone mm-hmm. can, can claim that. <laughs> tell me a little bit about, uh, your childhood. Have you always been creative? Have you always loved the image? I have. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in LA, which I didn't realize was a strange thing for filmmakers until I became a filmmaker like when I grew up and became a filmmaker it's like everywhere I go people are like really you're you're from here <laughs> you know and so there's, there's very few especially like directors DP that kind of thing you know usually LA else. transplants uh-huh yeah. and um so I mean I just grew I grew up around it I didn't really have family members in the film industry 
Um, but I always grew up around it. Like there was, you know, film sets around and the studios were nearby and it was just like a pretty normal part of my childhood. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody in my, well, my, my aunt kind of works for, my aunt works for Disney, but she's an archivist. So it wasn't really film production per se. Um, and, um, my parents, I don't I mean, my dad used to do a lot of photography when I was young. Like we had a dark room in our house and, um, he used to take pictures for, um, a newspaper. Did you kind of shadow him through all that? Were you always interested in what he was doing? I mean, kind of. I always liked photography. My parents were always very into it. Like we would take a lot of photographs. We had super eight cameras that we would, my parents always wanted to take a lot of, um, films of us. And so it wasn't, I wasn't like really a stranger. Mm-hmm to film it was just kind of part of what we do mm-hmm. um my mom you know my mom was always very much into the arts as far as like she always made everybody play musical instruments my mom used to do stained glass windows she would make those oh, that's beautiful. which was like a really cool art she would do it at her house you know build i mean did she have her own little studio or she would I mean, by yeah. studio, I mean, our living room. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. That is absolutely. I mean, but we had all these sorts of, yeah, stained glass windows in our house, which was, I mean, we had this like ramshackle kind of little house, but it was like had these really great stained glass windows in it. Oh, that's beautiful. Very um, charming. Do you so know what? Much character. My mom actually went and got them. She went to visit that house and she noticed they had taken the stained glass window out of the kitchen and it was like sitting on the side of the house. She's like, can I buy that? And the guy's like, you can just have it. <gasps> So it's really cool. So now it's hanging in her house. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, being artistic, being expressing yourself through physicality, like was always part of what I grew up with. And I didn't realize it until I got much older that like, that's not how everyone lives. Um, do you know, and we didn't, uh, we didn't move around a ton. I probably lived in like five different places as a kid, but I think that we, I, I think I grew up very much in a gypsy, bohemian kind of, you know, travel around kind of way. More nomadic. We, just, we were yeah. very kind of nomadic. I mean, I always lived in LA, but it was like, you know, on weekends we would just go. My Like kind of bohemian? Like was your parents, were your parents kind Okay, of my parents would hate that word. They, <laughs> hey, they do not like hippies at that all. Is- Totally understand. But they're very much like camping, get outside. Right. Like my dad Hello. converted a van. <laughs> yeah, I mean my well, my dad converted a van into like had like a fridge and a yeah. a stove in the back and we would just go. And I think also They cared about experiences, like a rich life, exposure to lots of different things. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah, my parents um both kind of both blue collar people. Um but extremely smart and educated your your parents uh, weren't like full-on hippies but they were very supportive of the arts and exposing <laughs> you to different uh experiences that were not just creative but expressive yeah totally like they really wanted us to express ourselves through different means yeah um was there ever a time when they stopped supporting that oh no no do you know what okay so i'll tell you like when i was like 14 I was always, well, I, I would say that I always did plays. My mom used to produce plays, like just, just community kind of, not, not even community, like, you know, church plays or these kind of things. And I would watch. And when I was too young to participate, like I would, I was just like so in awe of it. 
that I would do my own versions at home and I would put on plays and such because I didn't really have a, a, a means to, you know, I mean, this was the 1980s. It was like when we were pretty poor, so we didn't have a camera. Yeah. Well, we bought a Super 8 camera, but then that kind of went out of fashion. It was harder to get and it was more expensive and they just didn't do it. So like in the late 80s when I was growing up, it was, there was not a lot of, I, I didn't have access to making movies. So I would do plays. And then... Um, the first movies. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a movie. A way, I mean, you're yeah. practicing storytelling right. and... A different medium, but cinema draws so much from theater. Totally. Right? It's Totally, totally. It. Um, and when I... And then we, we bought... A, my parents bought a video camera because they realized they were not taking videos of my younger siblings. Like, there was lots oh, of videos of me. So well, there's lots of videos of me and my other... I'm the oldest yeah. of seven. And so there was like you know, me and there's a lot of super eight and then my other, and then they stopped doing it. And then it's, they were like, Oh, we need to get a video camera. So they bought one. Yeah. And I like instantly commandeered it and was like always making movies whenever I could. And did you often make movies with your siblings? Did you oh, yeah. make them Yeah. Oh, it was and, all, siblings. you know, oh, and I would make it. these films that Family were like, production. well, it was films that were like adult themes, not like you know, not yeah, anything yeah, yeah. rated not R, themes, but it was but like, but more it, mature themes. It should have yeah. been adults, but it was like, you know, me as the oldest, like a teenage, new teenager, all the way down to like a four-year-old, you know, and I was just like, you just yeah. play the role. And it was like, it's so <laughs> funny to wa think about now or to watch, yeah. you know, but it's like. Because the four-year-old's playing like an, like an angry. Yeah, like a gangster or something like that. <laughs> you know, like yeah, barely out of diapers and they're like, yeah. gangster. Um, <laughs> those are so special though, to have those. those oh, they are. Now. I know. I put them all onto, well, I put them on a DVD a while ago. Yeah. Now I need to transfer them again. Um. But they, oh, my mom, she said to me once, you know, she said, did you know that you can do that for a living? And I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. Like I could totally do it. I didn't even think about it. How like, old are you? I was 14. 14. And like thinking about, it, there was like so much, uh, you know, filmmaking all around me, but it just hadn't clicked yet. Like, oh, you could do this for real. Yeah. Like this you could, could be the rest of your life. This could you could be get... your jam. Yeah. I was, it was, I mean, That's that, that really changed my life. And my, and my mom, my, yeah, my parents were always supportive. I mean, they, they told me they were like a little bit worried at times, yeah. but like never showed it, never said anything. What do you I mean, mean? Filmmaking isn't lucrative from the get go. It's just like on its own. What, what parents, why would they be worried? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, the thing is they grew up, they, they're from LA. So they knew yeah. people who make movies. It's like, you know, when I was in high school, like they knew there was a lot of people and my parents even introduced me to people like, um, one of my neighbors worked for, um, like kind of all the studios, like repairing cameras. Like the, the studios used to own more of their own cameras and he would just go around and repair them or like IMAX cameras. And so like, I would just go to his shop and, you know, work mm -hmm. there like, and, and got to see all these really crazy things. Like remember I saw a West cam. It was this, it's this huge like gyro thing that they would put on, um, helicopters to like stabilize. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I would like repair magazines and that sort of thing. Mags are like the old, yeah. you know, the film magazines Yeah. for those who don't know. Um, and so you got so much hands-on yeah. experience with cameras and I you, did. it just kind of led you into your path. It seemed like it kind of, it just, it seems like you actively chose it, but it also called to you. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, I know some people who are like kind of pushed in, not pushed into it, but like, oh, that's your life because their, their, their father was a DP or something mm -hmm. or, you know, their mom worked in film or, you know, and they just kind of end up 
It's like, oh, your life was driven that way. Mine wasn't necessarily geared that way, but it was very easy for me to get there. You know, like I've talked to people who like grow up in Oklahoma and it's like, they don't know one person who works in film. They don't know anything about how you get in. And so they have to kind of go very roundabout, you know, maybe start film school or just show up in LA or, you know, but for me it was like easier access. What drew you to cinematography over other aspects of filmmaking or other mediums? Oh, this is a really, this is something I have a lot to say about. Do you know, I, I think that, um, people will often say to me like, like directors or producers or like, Oh, you just, you care too much about the cinematography. And I'm like, or they don't say it in those words, but you know, like, Oh, there's other things that are important. And I'm like, I was drawn to the cinematography because it's the most important thing Mm -hmm. in a film to me. I know that, I mean, script is very, you know, script makes or breaks a film, the director, the the acting. But you have a really good point because you remove any of those other pieces, you could still have a film, but if you remove the camera, you can't have a film. I I wrote a thesis paper in college about that, that like, if you don't have a camera, it's Mm -hmm. not a movie. You know, you can have acting without being a movie. You can have a script without being, you know, you can write things, all, everything else in a movie, music, acting, costume, you know, all these things exist outside of movies, but you have to have the image. Otherwise it's, it's radio or a play or, you know, and so I think that, that I, I was drawn to it because it was the most cinematic. It was what cinema was to me, you know, and you can't. Did it also like capture, were you drawn to the story aspect of it? Does that, oh, I that love kind of, stories. Is that a driver for I you? I love telling stories. Yeah. I think the stories are definitely the, I mean, I, when I say that, I don't mean. I find mean, that artists are ultimately storytellers. They just found yes. a medium, right? That yeah. The story can, is the they, most they important express. thing in making something good. And you know, the direction, the direction you're going to go in is definitely the best and performance. I always put that above the cinema. It's like, okay, the, the, the image is less important than the than the performance, but to me, the, the the cinematography is what makes it a movie. And you are a cinematographer. That is probably what you should care about the most, right? Well, it is, <laughs> but but sense. but it comes. It wasn't like I was forced to be a cinematographer, mm. and so I'm trying to make it important. I see. It was the most important thing, so that's why I became a cinematographer. Yes, not I see. the other way around. Um, I just I think that to me. An image can speak so much without say without saying very much. Like um, a friend of mine, a director, told me that directors and DPs direct the subtext and not the text. Like the text mm-hmm. is there, the actors read it. You know, it's that that's our outline for what we're doing. But the cinematography can help you feel the subtext without necessarily telling you otherwise it wouldn't be subtext you know there but like if you're doing a movie where you know you're doing a scene where the um an actor is saying one thing maybe acting strong or saying something but it's really a lie the cinematography through angle lighting movement can help you as an audience feel that they are lying or that they're unsure of themselves, or we should be suspicious of this person. Like Mm -hmm. all of these feelings can be conveyed through lighting and and camera, Mm -hmm. which to me is very exciting. Because the camera picks up that nuance, right? Yeah. I mean, but I can use like, um, I can use angles. Mm -hmm. I could use, you know, putting people into a silhouette, like putting, like those choices that you get to make as a cinematographer are 
really influential. Like I think that a lot of people think cinematographers are looking for the prettiest image, shoot the most sunsets, shoot the, you know, make the, make the actress look beautiful, etc. But to me, I think that what's the most exciting is to make you feel a change, make you feel, make you feel something without having to directly say it to you with words. Like and, you, and it doesn't just have to be, Oh, this, this is beautiful. And I feel like this is pretty. It can be, Oh, I feel the ugliness of the scene, or I mm -hmm. feel like the power, or the conflict, or the pain, or the grief, because oh, it transport sure. you there. Transport yeah. you there. Oh, making yeah, making people feel things is incredible to me, yeah. and it's all. I mean, it goes unnoticed, and really, the thing that's interesting about cinematographers, most cinematographers that I know, is that you are trying to make your work invisible. So it's like if somebody goes gets to the end of the movie and they go, oh, wow, the cinematography was really great. It's like, oh, you kind of blew it. You know, even though it's a compliment, it's, it's like, oh, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be making this, you know, image. Have you feel certain things and have you immersed into the film? I so mean, you, you know. You, would you say you prioritize serving the story above all else? A hundred percent. Like we're just there telling a story. Yeah. Like direct, you know, director, myself, you know, actors, we're telling a story and it's not, it shouldn't be us above that story. It's just whatever is going to make mm -hmm. it work. Yeah. You know, it's not about ego. It's not about even at a point. It shouldn't be about ego. <laughs> ideally. Right. But at, at a point, the project takes such a mind of its own that even if like you, and I think about this a lot of, as a director, like sure, maybe my taste and my vision can help inform the beginning, but then it really does just take a mind of its own and you just have to serve the story. You have yeah. to serve the higher power to make it work and to make people feel it. I mean, uh, that's something that's very interesting about filmmaking is that it's such a collaborative and it's such a mosaic art form. You know, I mean, we take basically, you know, when, when people say, oh, the arts, you know, it's like, oh, music and, you know, imagery and, um, sorry, and the theater. And it's like we take all those things and put them together and it creates something very interesting. And because you can't really, it's really difficult to make a movie by yourself. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of any good movies that were made by one person, but it's, it's um, because you're working with all those people, you have so many different ideas. And it, yeah. it also has to get, you can't really rehash it. Like cinematography, it's like, it's going to happen right now yeah. or it's never going to happen. Yeah. You know, especially with a budget. It's like, okay, we've got... 24 days to shoot this movie and it's going to happen in those 24 days or it's not going to happen at all. And you know, sun's going down. It's like now or never. So it's such a, um, you know, it's not like you, you can't really be laborious about it as much as you can in some other art forms where you like work on one image for, you know, weeks or months or whatever, you know, it's like, no, this is something where you have to move at a pretty quick pace, mm -hmm. which is why prep is so important. Amen. Amen. I, I'm with you. I think filmmaking is the ult ultimate collaborative art form. Um, not above other art, art forms. That, I mean, I'm partial to it because I'm a filmmaker. Uh -huh. So of course I love it. I love, uh, I'll geek out about film anytime because you're working with different artists at like the top of their, uh, like the top of their game. Uh, like the makeup artist is an, is a makeup artist. She's an artist or he is all on their own. Right. That's mm -hmm. fantastic to me because you get to bring their expertise into the, into the film world. But the film world, it's, it's different than, say, let's say you're a painter. You've got you as the painter, the canvas, and then the subject. Maybe that's a model. Maybe that's a still life. 
Um, but in film, you have to have. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. I think that you have to have <laughs> multiple multiple positions filled. You have to have at least a small crew of two. <laughs> yeah. At least you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. At least a crew of two. And I think that that's um, that. What that does say in comparison to other mediums is that it makes film particularly complicated because you cannot execute without multiple hands involved. Mm-hmm. And I find that fascinating. But I think that it works really well, or at least for me, because I am a like collaborative type of person, where it's like, you, I, you know, I may have something very particular in my mind, but then my gaffer will say, what about this? You know, and it's like having another pair of eyes to say, you know, I, I think that like directors and then like to a similar degree, like DPs, it's like you have a vision and you're constantly, people are constantly offering you options. Like, what about this? What about that? And you're saying, yes, no, those, this fits, this doesn't fit. And you, you know, I do the same thing with cinematography. It's like, oh, how about this extra, you know, light, you know, you want a backlight, you want this purple light in the background. it's like, no, that doesn't fit. This does fit, you know, and that, and it, and it eventually, maybe that made it pretty, but it doesn't fit. Yeah. That it doesn't tell the story correctly. No. Yeah. Amen. I kind of want to go a little, I want to backtrack a little bit to family again. Okay. You're talking about your parents. You're the oldest of seven. Uh Uh-huh. Are your siblings also pretty artsy? No, (laughs) no. Uh, I had one brother that I kind of tried to pull into film a little bit. He wasn't having it. Now he makes microchips for intel oh cool um i have a sister who's a writer um she's probably the only one she's my youngest um mm-hmm. sibling and she's a writer she works for amazon it's like a writer's agent trying mm-hmm. to write children's books and such um not a lot yeah i'm surprised mm-hmm. actually that there's not a lot of artists i mean everybody kind of plays some musical instruments everybody's into the arts like we're we were always taught to appreciate the arts and everyone's creative I'll, I'll reiterate this on every episode if I have to yeah. I, I believe that firmly that everyone is creative but I do not believe that necessarily everyone is an artist but that doesn't mean you can't become an artist anyone could but I think some people feel the call and they can't fathom anything else yeah and but everyone is creative and everyone can learn from that but I think that everybody I mean can be like any kind of field you can be an artist I think that if you are creatively expressing yourself and changing, like helping the world see something different, mm-hmm. that um, that you're an artist. How would you define art then? I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think that artist is something that people have a lot of terms for. You know, to a lot of yeah. people, it's just, it's, it's painters and sculptors. Those are artists. You know, and to other people, it's more of the traditional creative outlets, you know, mm-hmm. the theater, dance, art, you know. And, but to me, I think that like, you know, I, I'm very inspired by architecture when people yeah. are artistic, you know, if it's, I just, would put that as an art form. Yeah. If they're 100%. just making a cube, it's not. And then, but then and, and obviously architecture is, is. In like the, I think there's like a, there's a breakdown of like eight classic mediums. And I think it's architecture, cinema, music, sculpture, painting, dance. I'm blinking out the theater? last th- theater. <laughs> that would that would be one. I don't know. And then there was Glass. one more. There was one more. There was one more that was considered like the classical forms, uh-huh. but that's not comprehensive. Uh, that is what I generally yeah. go to when I think artists. 
Um, And that tends, that, that is also where I draw the pool of guests for this podcast for the most part are those kinds of artists. But I, I'm with you. I, I, I do wonder if art is less about the medium and more about the, the, the expressiveness of it or the dedication to it or the, um, like almost the practice of building a skill in something. Yeah. Well, I would think that like, to me, um, Nikola Tesla is extremely inspiring. I think that just the way that he saw the world differently, even though all of his, you know, scientific, um, basis existed in the world and he was just, you know, great, but like to come up with, Oh, I think an alternating current or, you know, we were the, would work better the direct current would work better than the alternating current or um you know just seeing the world differently so that you can express something differently just because it's based in science isn't really I don't think negates it from being an art you know and my job is very much uh involves a lot of physics and chemistry like you're not I'm not mixing chemicals on set but you know we would when we were shooting film, it was always very chemical. Like you had to understand that using, I mean, light and optics are all from physics, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel that an understanding of science helps me do that art in the same way that somebody who's really creative within the, you know, scientific realm is an artist. Mm -hmm. Technical artists are still artists, right? Even if you're focused, like I think of like VFX editors or VFX uh, specialists, for instance. Yeah. Um, on a previous episode with uh, a different filmmaker, he is also a VFX artist, uh, but also producer. And he's like, oh, my paintbrush when I'm a VFX artist is, is an eraser. He's like, that, mm-hmm. that's what I do. He's like, I'm fixing, I'm fixing problems. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's my art. Uh, that's my artistic contribution to the film when I'm in a VFX role. Um, and well, you know, you can be, I mean, you can do all those art, you know, quote art things too. You know, you could play the piano and you can just be somebody who pushes the buttons. You know, and it's like, okay, that's a song, but that's a, that doesn't make you Franz mm-hmm. Liszt. Yeah. You know, it's like having the creative ability to mm-hmm. have something really important to say mm-hmm. is where the art comes in. Yeah. I, I think that's why I would say they're technical artists, but I think that those who often feel the call, it's more than a technical drive. It's a spiritual or, or, or a creative inspiration. Um, a lot of artists talk about you know, where do you get inspiration? They're like, oh, I tap into something maybe a little bit bigger than myself. In one way or the other, they feel something that doesn't always come from them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd relate to that or if that's what you would what you would say where you get inspiration. But um, you're 14. You know you want to be a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Did you have any mentors at this point? I know you're working at the for the for the guy who fixes all the cameras for the studios. Okay. Well, my yeah, my at the time I didn't know anybody personally, um, in film, but I would, um, I started doing still photography a lot, um, because that was a great way to learn about chemicals and chemistry and, you know, where to put the camera about lighting. Um, and you shot on film. Uh huh. Yeah. It was all film back then. It was in the nineties. Yeah. Um, and well, I saw a few films in a row, a couple, you know, in, in like right in the early nineties, where they really impressed me as far as like what cinematography could do. I watched Tim Burton's Batman. Oh, I love that uh, Batman. I saw that for the first time last month. Oh, it's so, so fun. good. So fun. It's so I saw it, I saw it in the theater when it came out. Yeah. I saw The Abyss. Yeah. And then I saw a movie called Immortal Beloved. Okay. 
It's a, dir- a DP named uh, Peter Sushitsky. It blew my mind. Like it's a film about Beethoven. And so it's all about um, music, obviously, and also his ability to not be able to hear. Um, and I guess his lack disabil- of ability, lack of ability yeah, to hear, but and, almost ability to hear because in spite of it, right? Yeah, I mean, but the cinematography really conveyed all of those feelings for me. And it was the first time that I was fifteen or sixteen when I saw it, and I, I was just like, it, I noticed it right away. I was like, oh my gosh, like the image is telling the story. There's also this scene in in the film. Um, Gary Oldman plays Beethoven. The this guy, this other guy, is sitting and he's listening to a rehearsal of a, the new Beethoven piece that's been released. And he's in a practice, uh, you know, a private practice rehearsal thing. And he's like, he's so excited and he's listening really intently. And this guy comes in behind him and is just like talking super loudly and he's like insulting them. And the guy's freaked out. He's just like, I, are you insane? Like this is, you know, they're, they're amazing. And it turns out that he is Beethoven. And he's like, I can't hear them, but I know they're destroying it. I know they're ruining it. And he asks the guy, like, what is, what is music? And Beethoven goes on to tell him about how, or he says, you know, oh, the guy says, oh, it, it enlightens the soul. And he's like, that's nonsense. Like when you hear a march, are you enlightened? He's like, no, you hear a march, you march. You hear a waltz, you dance, you know, and and he said, and this is kind of what the movie tries to show throughout, is that music can transport the listener into the mind of the composer. So whatever the composer was thinking at that moment, that and that's the point of the art, is to try and get to your viewers or your listeners to experience something that you experienced. What, what did you, even if it's just in your mind, whatever you, whatever thoughts are in your head, whatever is something that you may have experienced or someone else experienced, you're trying to help them through the imagery, in my case, to experience what somebody else has experienced. And I think that that's how we grow as human beings, like being able to experience what other people have experienced. It creates empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it creates empathy, which is really great. Even if it's, you know, uh, like even when you go to films that are, about villainous people who are not the greatest people in the world. You can learn so much because the film is trying to show empathy for these people. They're still human, even though they're making really bad choices or they may not be great for people around them. You still have some sort of empathy and it doesn't mean you condone or, you know, or applaud these people, Mm -hmm. but you're still, you're showing empathy. Yeah. You could, you could show bad guys without glorifying bad guys. Uh, it kind of made me think about like, what is our responsibility, I guess, as filmmakers? Because on one hand, you know, film is meant to be a little bit sensationalized because that's why we watch, because it's, it's something a little bit larger than life, yeah. a little bit bigger than reality. Um, but at the same time, if you lose aspects of reality, then you lose, well, realism. You lose, you lose heart. Um, mm-hmm. And I, uh, I think you also lose responsibility too. What do you think? I, don't know. I, I guess it just oh, kind of relates to that. I have a lot to say about that, I think. There's so many things going through my mind. Um, okay, one, one in particular is that I've found that because of who I am, like different, there's a lot of different aspects, but because of who I am, I have a responsibility, I think, 
to tell certain stories and to tell those stories accurately. And by accurately, I mean in a way that other people can understand and experience a little bit of that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the one that's kind of the most present for me probably is being transgender. Like, I think that trans people have been represented very poorly on screen for, mm-hmm. you know, if the there first is hundred representation to begin with, right? Well, anytime that they are yeah. represented, it's generally been bad. Comedic uh, or just like not taken seriously. Yeah, we're always the butt or, of a joke yeah. or the villain or, you know, or completely misrepresented about who we are, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I feel that no, you know, it's like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, then I'd better, you know, step up. So it's like anytime I can, I have the opportunity to try and tell that story, yeah. I try to be in, involved with it. Mm-hmm. Or even just being a representative of my own, you know, like, I mean, I meet meet a lot of people where I'm the only trans person they've ever met. And so it's like, if I'm good at my job, you know, being successful, that's really can, can be um, helpful to people that's telling that story. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I made a film, I kind of wound up being in a documentary, which was weird for me. Because I started out filming it. Is this the Nowness documentary? Yeah. The one about my friend. Mm-hmm. It's about my friend Ava and I, who, were, who at the time were the only trans cinematographers that we knew of. And so we we were like, oh, we made a film about us being friends and everything else. And surprising kind of other similarities, too. Both yeah. Mormon backgrounds and, and cinematographers, yeah. right? You guys were drawn to the art to begin uh-huh. with. But then you also are both trans, and you guys can share that in that experience, yeah. too, which is pretty unique. I mean, Pretty everywhere, special. well, do you know what's also unique? Because everywhere that I go, I generally have, usually a woman, but somebody on set will say to me, oh, it's so great to work with a female DP, or I've never worked with a female DP. And in the back, I don't generally tell them, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, you have no idea how rare I am. <laughs> like, yeah. beyond being a woman, I'm probably the only trans woman you've ever met um, and worked with as a cinematographer. And... Um, yeah, so I feel like I always have this responsibility to tell that story. And okay, so because of that film, one of the things that surprised me that came out of it was that a lot of mothers of trans kids, or even, you know, trans or 20 year old, 25 year olds, you know, who haven't started their career, there's kind of a thought because of movies, people think, oh, your life's going to fall apart, you're going to become, you know, no one's going to hire you, no one's going to love you, all these things. And while some of those things are true, that it's much more stacked against us, like so many mothers were excited about that. And they'll tell me like, oh, that's thank you for making this film because now I'm like have some hope that it's like, oh, you can at least be a functioning human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. Yeah, that that doesn't have to. Yeah, I see. I see. Do you know, I mean, I have other, you know, other aspects of my life, too, like being Mormon, you know, like when I did Murder Among the Mormons, it was like. That was, I, it was a shooting. It's like, oh, I already know this culture. Like, how do I tell? Mm-hmm. How, and, and, and the story was not a very Mormon story. It was just kind of set amongst Mormondom. But it was like, how do we turn this on its head? Because it's not a typical Mormon story. It's more about murder and death and cheating. And, you know, so how Crime do we. Crime and secrets and yeah. treasure documents. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's fun. It's super fun. I, I benched that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you, yeah. How, so how do you represent that? And I. I don't know. It's, it's so, it's difficult to know because we don't, I will say it's, you know, like in theater, you can just, everyone's doing their own take on films. Mm-hmm. 
you know, doing, it's like you'll do, do Shakespeare plays over and over. You know, it's like there's been thousands of versions of Macbeth. And, but with film, it's always been kind of seen as you have to have this super original story and not the telling isn't what's as important. But I think it's super important. And I think you could do that. You know, I don't, I don't think that remakes are necessarily, it can be lazy for sure, but it could also be really great. It's like taking a retelling. You know, I'm really excited about Joel Cohen's Macbeth. Oh, you know? I'm excited to see so that too. Awesome. Yeah. There's this curse of, of originality. We're like, oh, we're, uh, artists can be very scared of cliches. They're very scared of like, oh, what's, uh, like everything's been made already. Like, is there, can there be anything original that we can actually do? You know, mm -hmm. we want some, to make something fresh. We want to make something new and different. And I think that originality isn't in one single idea. One single idea has probably been done before, and that's okay. Originality, it comes in the execution and in the combination of ideas. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where something fresh comes. And that's where your perspective or your individual take can bring that newness that you're looking for. And I think sometimes people overlook that because it, it can be easy to think everything's been made before. What's the point? You know, maybe the story has already been set yeah. or someone did it better. I mean, you know, I... I'm working on a documentary about endometriosis right now. And I remember a couple years ago, I saw a documentary about periods and I was like, oh man, that's so good. It's like, oh, that's, <laughs> I remember at the moment I was like, why didn't I make this? But, but that's not actually the point. What, what I'm realizing is that exactly what I said, originality isn't in that one single idea. I could make a documentary about periods. In fact, I am about endometriosis, right? And the originality will come in the execution and in the combination of those ideas. Yeah. So it is always worth it to make it, to press forward. I think that like what makes something original is when you can feel that you can feel the director's fingerprints or all of the filmmakers' fingerprints all over mm -hmm. it. I was like watching um, Do the Right Thing recently, which I've seen for, you know, I saw it 20 years ago and I've wa I watch it every few, very, every so often because it's such a great, it's such a great um, example of, the telling of the story, um, you know, the way that he tells it, like you can just, if I had no idea who had made it and I watched it fresh, you could tell a black man made this film or, you know, even more so a black American. It's just like, he knew exactly what it was like to be an African American in New York at that time. Yeah. And it just oozes with the feeling of African American culture. Yeah. And I aim to do that with you know, with myself, it's like, oh, how do I tell Mormon stories? How do I tell American stories? How do I tell, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you know, I'm a fairly complicated person, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, having lived in different countries, having, you know, speaking different languages, speaking, um, you know, just can, can we expand more on that? So we kind of dropped off with where you're 14. Uh -huh. Um, and did like coming to terms with like being trans and film, did that intersect? Did that kind of coincide? Well, this is the interesting thing. Like, I think that my pathway as an artist was very much limited and stunted because I was in denial about who I was. Mm. For the longest time, I was very ashamed of being who I was, trying constantly trying to hide it. Like, I mean, I didn't come out till I was 33. So it was like this long period, a decade you know, after knowing you wanted to be a filmmaker. Yeah. Like I was, I mean, I was going, you know, I went to film school and I was trying to make all these films and I didn't realize, I just kind of thought, oh, well, anybody who's good at it can do this. Right. You know, it's just that that's all there is to it. Like that there's, I'm going to light it. I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to tell the story, whatever that story is. And I didn't realize how much 
my personality, my life experiences that I could bring to cinematography and tell that story. And it's really only been in the last five years that I realized, I figured out how to do that. And I'm, I'm still trying to do that. It's like, how do I, how do I fit in? Like I'm a cog in this giant art machine. I don't, I don't mean the larger Hollywood machine, but just in a film, mm -hmm. it's like, there's a director and there's, you know, actors and all that. And it's like, how do I, as a cinematographer, what's my role? How do I fit in to that? And how can I make my voice heard? Not in an egotistical way, but in a, somebody's doing the cinematography and how does that, how do I, as an individual with so many complex, you know, backgrounds and thoughts and all of my being, how do I put that onto the screen? And it's a complicated thing. And it's really, it's very new for me because I felt like I couldn't do it. I wasn't aware, but I don't think that I could do it when I was pretending to be somebody else. Like I wasn't a full person. And so it was really difficult for me to mm. do that. You know, I mean, one example that I think is very, really obvious now, especially since there are not a lot of women cinematographers, is bringing a female perspective to something. Mm -hmm. You know, the same way that Spike Lee can bring a, a African-American male, you know, mm -hmm. perspective to his films. I'm like, oh, I can put like a feminine stamp on there. I can put a trans stamp, a queer stamp. I can put, you know, uh, I, I'm constantly bringing all my, you know, Sp Spanish things or Russian thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, I think that like living in and amongst different cultures, mm -hmm. it's given, it's kind of like being in a large scale movie. Like instead of going and watching something, for, you know, when you watch a foreign film or you watch a film about a language, culture, world that you don't understand or you're not part of, you learn something, right? You get empathy, you see something, you go, oh, they see things a little bit differently than me and that's okay. Or even better or great or, you know, and when you live in those places, it's even longer. It's, you know, year, two years, five years, you know, of becoming part of that culture and seeing the world in a different mm -hmm. way. And even like, there's this saying that um, says, every um, language that you I'm trying to translate it in my brain <laughs> every language that you learn is another time that you become human mm. so you're like every every ling like a language has built-in ways of seeing the world and talking about the world you know like for instance like it's kind of a small thing but it's it's a good example I think is like um, in Russian what where English speakers would just say blue they have multiple words for this is this kind of color, you know, like, and that color. And when, when scientists will um, show, like they'll, they'll do studies on different speakers and like, you'll show um, like a, a rainbow, right. And scale and, and, and it's moving across the scale. And when it goes like red to orange to yellow, and when you get there, Russians are more distinctly, it changed color. You know, they're like, it went from Sini to Galaboy. Whereas English speakers are just like, well, it's blue, it's blue, it's blue, you know, and then it, and then eventually becomes violet. And that way of like seeing the world, like makes things so different. It's a new language. I mean, you're not just, I mean, you're a badass because you're trilingual, but you're not just trilingual between like English, Spanish, and Russian. You also know the cinematic language and that is a language uh -huh. as well, right? Uh, well, I think that like um, music is another language. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've read about that your, your, you know, your brain reacts to music the same way that it does to learning another language that it's like mm -hmm. becoming bilingual. Um, can you, can you give a little bit of context that decade 
14 to 33, you were That's two focused, decades. <laughs> two, two, oh yeah, two decades. Oh yeah, I, I know, man. Uh, so those couple decades there, you're uh-huh. focusing on your film career. Um, you weren't totally. Uh, I mean, I don't want to speak. I put words into your mouth, but uh, still exploring identity. Yeah. What, what What were you doing in that time? Like, were you? Did, was there any mentors <sighs> that you were like working closely with that were kind of guiding you through this, through your career, um, or? Or even on a more personal level, like like where were you at, if, if you're comfortable sharing, like yeah. where were you at in terms of your identity at this time and how did you get to where you are now? Because that's, I mean, it's that's quite the evolution. I was in complete denial. Not denial that it existed, but denying myself to think about it or dwell on it at all. I mean, it was constantly there. Like I always felt female, mm-hmm. but there was just not... I had learned that it was a bad thing, uh, you know, from my parents, from my uh, yeah. religion, but also because from society. Because your family society. was really supportive creatively, but they were still not religious. The trans, they were still yeah. religious. And, and the Mormon religion is not the most friendly to LGBTQ no, as, a, but, as a religion, right? Individuals can be, but as a religion, it's, it's yeah, not Yeah, but I accepted. think that what people forget, too, is that, like, at that time, in 80s, 90s, when I was a kid, the whole world was pretty cruel to queer people. Yeah. Like, I didn't know anybody who came out in high school. Nobody yeah. in my high school I mean, came they were out. playing games like Smear the Queer in the 90s. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't, uh, yeah, I definitely, I met one trans person when I was 16. She worked with my dad. And um, I knew, and I, this is even LA, where everybody thinks of it as like this liberal progressive bastion. And it's like, no, in the 90s, we were very cruel to queer people. And especially as a teenager. Um, so it was like, there was no thought of actually coming out. Well, it was there like as a daydream, you know, wouldn't that yeah. be wonderful? Wouldn't this be great? But there was no like actual thinking about doing it because it was so dangerous. I will literally be murdered. Yeah. So there's no way I can do that. Um, and I always had a thought, you know, in the back of my mind, I always had this thought of like, how do I escape, start a new life? not tell anyone that I'm trans and then just live a life, my life as a woman, you know, how I wanted to. And so it was always a fantasy that was, yeah, I was always like, okay, how much money can I save up? You know, which at that age, it was like a few hundred bucks, you know, whose car can I take? Where could I go? Who could I live with? Like who's maybe safe? My aunt had a boyfriend who turned out to be gay, but they were still friends and he would come over. So I knew that she was like pretty safe and, um, you know, but in the end, really, I didn't, I thought, one, I would lose my cinematography career, which was a big thing. It was like, oh, I'm going to go to film school. You know, I mean, after high school, I went to film school. And it was like, I kept thinking it. I'm like, okay, I could just like disappear and go start a new life. But then I don't get to be a cinematographer. So I don't want to do that. Which is also so core to you. It's so core. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, my gosh. It is. And so I just, I kept it a secret. And I thought, I kept thinking that I could keep it a secret forever always secretly hoping that I would die, um, that, you know, I'd get into a car accident. I would put myself into very dangerous situations on set. It's like, there's a lot of things where you could die on set or just doing stupid things, not on set, you know, just doing things where you're like, yeah, you could die. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, that would be really, that would be a way out of this dilemma that I just could not fix. But at the same time, I was trying to do all these things that I thought were going to be really good things that, that in general are good things. I was just doing them the wrong way. Yeah. 
like, you know, I tried to find something I love, cinematography. And then, you know, I was always taught, especially in a Mormon culture, but just in society in general, it's like, find a partner, get married, you know, this will be great. Yeah, these are the next steps. Uh huh. And so I did, I found somebody that I loved and we got married and I was like, oh, this is really great. And it was like, it felt really great for like six months. Were you still a practicing Mormon at this time? Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we got we got married. We got married in the Salt Lake Temple. And um, she's amazing. And then, you know, we, it kind of got worse. I thought that it would be better. It was, it was even harder. And then... Well, and, and to be fair, like, I mean, I grew up in the same religion you did. It uh-huh. kind of teaches you that if you do follow this path, that everything will be okay. You know, they kind of say, oh, if this is something I was told when I was in a failing marriage, oh, if you're just righteous, if both of you are just righteous enough, it'll all work out. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, I was married once. And and I, I, I had a similar feeling of, be, of feeling trapped. Not the, It's not the same thing. But when you're trapped and, you, and your brain's looking for a way out, it gets kind of kind of it just looks for ways to end it right mm-hmm. it like it's like oh it's not like i want to like maybe necessarily actively kill myself but i would be fine if i just stopped existing or i'd be exactly. fine if my car just crashed into the side of the medium or you know it's just like oh it would be fine you know in fact i almost kind of want it to happen you know because mm-hmm. you want a way out of that trapped situation different but but being very trapped similar is not, too being trapped no, is, I know. Not, is not is not a good time yeah it's not a good time yeah, I, I yeah I, I found that as like a common theme amongst a fair amount of people. I mean, the thing is that it works out for so many people that it's like, oh yeah, yeah. finding someone you love, getting married, that's great. It's just that if you're it's doing beautiful. it kind of wrong reasons or wrong, you know, I thought it would fix me. I thought it would be make mm-hmm. things better. Or, or and even it didn't. It made even it harder. In an instance, I think that two people can be trying their best, both of them, and there's still a gap, right? Yeah, because it's definitely. just not working anymore. And that, yeah. and that's, that's a very tough pill to swallow because, you know, the, the, maybe the proactive side of you wants to be like, oh, if we just try harder, if we just work harder, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's just not how it works. Not at all. Yeah. So, okay. then I made another step of, oh, well, having kids and a family is supposed to be great. Right. And while I love my children to death. How many do you have? I have three kids. Adorable. Yeah. We had three kids in 13 months. It's pretty intense. Oh, no way. And they're uh-huh. all individual? They're not like twins? Uh, two of them are twins. Twins and then a... Nice. And then what? what's the name for that? Because if you're in... Irish triplets? Irish triplets. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. The twins don't... They deny it. They're like, nope, we're twins and you're separate. Oh, they, <laughs> but the poor Irish triplets. Like, yeah. We're, we're, they're Irish triplets, though. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my kids are awesome and it's also, you know, it's not... It's not a lot of trans people get to have kids and such. So I'm like very grateful. Yeah. They're awesome. But like that new responsibility of being a quote father mm-hmm. was very overwhelming and kind of pushed me, you know, and so I just kept getting worse and worse, more it's, and more suicidal. Especially because if you if you do follow that path, there's a lot of assumptions that people place onto what those roles mean. Like this is what a marriage oh, looks like. This is what being a mother looks like. This is what being a father looks like. And that pressure can be a lot, especially when it really should just be about the family and what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't, it shouldn't have all this other garbage piled on. Yeah. It. But on top of that too, it was that it wasn't fair to my wife who thought she had married a guy. Yeah. She's a hetero woman, wanted to marry a guy, did marry a, which, who she thought was a guy. And you know, so then to like, after to then change those roles and say, Oh, we're going to change the only, and we weren't, 
we weren't super typical, you know, it's like she was fine. You know, we would change a lot of gender role things, but not to the point like she definitely needed a man. She wanted to be married to a guy. And, you know, so I came out to her eventually. It was just like, cause I was at the point of, I'm going to, I'm going to end my life if this yeah. continues. So you know what I'll do? I'll just tell you. That's very, very scary, but definitely better than, than, than killing myself. So, um, I, I told her, and then we tried for seven years to find like some sort of equilibrium where I could be feminine enough for me to be okay, but still masculine enough that she would be okay. And we found that that middle ground did not yeah. exist. Both tried and it, that it made us still worse. There. We both got worse and worse. Yeah. And so then we eventually separated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, I mean, all the while I was kind of slowly transitioning. It was part of that thing. It was like, okay, what can we do? Well, how, yeah. how much can I become feminine? And then, so then it was like, once we decided to separate, then it was like, okay, then I'll yeah. just become whoever I want to be, being myself. Um, which really has taught me a lot about art and... How did, how did know, that affect your art? Because I, a heartbreak always will affect art, right? It does. The more you feel... And I talk about this on, on basically every episode, but like I think that the more grief you can feel, the more joy you can also feel. Uh-huh. I think that it kind of stretches you emotionally. Yeah, that's really hard to say because I've been experiencing a lot of grief recently. It's hard to think of grief as going to be helpful and good, but it has been yeah. for my grief in the past. Like being able to take, I think that like grief really helps you with empathy. I think that extreme feelings also put you in touch with the world a lot. Mm. You know, that you're looking for answers. You're trying to understand the world around you better because things are hard. If it was just kind of... And then where do I fit into that too? Yeah. Okay, this isn't... This is just the gospel according to Bianca. But like, I think that a lot of artists that are very successful are pretty tortured. You know, that there's a lot... It's not... I don't think that it's necessary. Yeah. I Oh, I don't, I don't buy into the broke, tortured artist. I don't think you have to be, I don't think it has to be a struggle to make good art, but that is the case for a lot of people. Okay. Well, I'll tell you about a friend of mine, a director that I've worked with for years. And we've talked a lot about filmmaking and like how to become a great artist, have something to say. And he's, he was very worried because, um, because he's been Mormon his whole life. Yeah. And Mormonism has a lot of there's answers for everything or at least comfort for everything you know or or they give you or at least there's approved answers for everything approved answers (laughs) but i guess as a cis hetero white male he has answers for everything right here's what's going to happen here's what you do you follow that you'll be happy and it's worked out for him the more you're the more you are a little different though or outside of that mold the more disenchanted or disconnected you would feel totally community right but what, what was interesting, what he said was like a, most of the great art that's been made in any kind of medium, but especially film, always has a sense of doubt in there. Why is the universe this way? Why did so-and-so have to die? Are they just, you know, that loss of, you know, everything that just a person being gone. Whereas with Mormonism, it's like, Oh, they died, but you'll see them soon. It's fine. They're in good. They're in a good place. And there's not an overarching sense of doubt about the universe and about the world. And so he's like, I don't know, like how great of a, you know, can I make mm. that really seminal, Kubrickian, you know, PTA mm-hmm. type movie where I'm just like, you know, because I don't have that doubt. And so it's, you know, yeah. he's an amazing filmmaker. So I, I don't think that. he has to worry about it. But, um, 
but it's really that that's really put me in a mind frame of like oh i don't know and like being not fitting the mormon mold ha, like very much puts me in a in a in that position of like i don't know i doubt i, I don't i don't know what to do with any of it you know what yeah. this feeling that i have that that's a, a fairly seminal feeling throughout most humankind i think you know, of doubt and, and why, why do I exist? Why does this happen? You know? And depending on where you take those doubts, you could get different reactions. Some people are like, mm -hmm. oh, it's okay to question. Oh, it's okay to, you know, but other people are, won't understand the question to begin with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mormonism in general has a problem of like, wait, what doubt? Just, just believe and you'll be yeah. fine. But I think if you don't, I think that I actually personally think, uh, Spiritually speaking, if you do not have doubts, then you do not have faith, personally. Because mm. uh, otherwise, it's just belief, and it could be unfounded. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of going back to that duality thing, I guess, you know, with, you know, more grief you experience, the more joy you experience. I think that those doubts can also, on the flip side, inform your faith, too. Inform faith and hope. It doesn't have to be in a particular religion, necessarily, but it will inform whatever that faith belief system it will yeah. eventually turn into. I think it's your doubts that inform that directly, personally. Did, was, yeah. that, was that kind of, did you get, a, what kind of reaction did you get, I guess, when you took all that to the community? Are you still a practicing Mormon? Do you know, I, I'm like, kind of. Um, I started going to Spanish words, mm -hmm. or a Spanish word. How did you learn I mean, Spanish? What's your I, well, I always kind of spoke it as a kid. There's, I mean, most people in LA kind of speak some and I spoke, okay. I really loved it. So I like would speak a fair amount, you know, some of my family is Mexican and you know, it would like, I, I learned some from them, you know, and, and then, um, I moved to Spain. I was a missionary for Mormon church. Oh, so that's two, how I first like, got, that's where I got really good. Two years, two years, two years. Yeah. <laughs> two years. <laughs> yeah. When, when was a missionary, um, and that's where I got really good. And like, as soon as the day I got there, I was like, oh my gosh, this is my people. I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be born here. In those two years, um, I, I, you know, talked with the other return missionaries that it, being a missionary for the Mormon church is a very structured experience. Uh, they fill your time from sunrise uh -huh. to sundown and it's very specific and there's approved activities. Um, there isn't really time for yourself. Um, and some people like that dedication. I am curious, what was it like taking a break from film for those two years for you? Because it, right? It was a totally different focus, right? Emission, submission. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a Okay, no, it's but... really, it's interesting, I guess. Like, um, oh, I started to talk about language earlier because I think that like what I learned from learning other languages is that you it's really just communication. You know, it's not like, um, when you learn a different language, I think that the, the trouble some people have, or a lot of people have with their fir the first new language that they learn is that you're, you're thinking of language as you just pull out this word. What's the Russian word for this? And you insert it there, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's very much, you're describing ideas that humans yeah. have, right? Yeah. All, all these ideas exist in the world. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's new ones that you've you thought of that nobody yeah. else has thought of, but you're you have sounds that you make with your mouth that convey that, and so you and I have 
a mutual understanding and all the other English speakers in the world that when I say, you know, couch, we have a mental image in our, in our brain of what a couch is. Mm -hmm. And that may change from culture to culture too, or, you know, but, um, all those, all these sounds that I'm making with my mouth are really just to convey ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see language very much like it's fluid, like, well, no, like cinematography. I'm like, I use, I use these tools that, um, to convey ideas, not just, not to capture something on film, which I think is such a, and not necessarily literal translation. Like you're not trying to spoon feed the audience. Like this is what you need to feel. I'm trying to convey ideas and feelings. Um, you know, as I, I studied photography in school before I did film school and my teacher there, he said, there's a real irony to the fact that we're inundated with images nowadays, but people don't know how to read them the way that they used to. Like throughout Middle Ages and Renaissance and before, before that, so many people were illiterate that paintings had a, um, what would you say, like a context for them. You know, if you saw someone in purple, you knew that person was royalty. You see, you know, that's why you would have halos behind the pe- behind Jesus or whoever was the person you're supposed to look at. It's like, this person's a holy person. You know, it's like all these ideas of color and light and such were coded and that anybody with a, that doesn't speak any language could understand a story from that image. Now we see images constantly. I mean, mm-hmm. 80% of our day we're seeing images and those... We, we don't know how to read them. We don't have as much of a codified system for mm. how do you read those. Like we almost don't feel it anymore, you think? Almost? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, we speak about it as cinematographers and filmmakers, like, um, you know, what we could do, you know, the, the silhouette will convey mm-hmm. this idea or that, you know, super strong backlight makes you feel this or, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, and so, and audiences feel that in a way, but there's not as much of a, as a stylized text for mm-hmm. how those things go, you know, the way that you did in Greek theater or, you know, in vaudeville or, you know, in Shakespeare, it's like, you know, there were things that people instantly as an audience knew, Oh, this person's the bad person. That's the other thing, you know, this is the Deus Ex Machina. It's all these things that are, you know, part of their yeah. storytelling that we're kind of missing now. Yeah. We're very much trying to move to this world of like making it feel quote real even though that's not really what yeah. storytelling is. It none of, it, none like of it's people, real. Audiences cr- crave authenticity, right? That's kind of like the buzzword uh-huh. right now. It, that does That is tossed around. That's tossed around in marketing and that's tossed around in film. Constantly. I hear it in both worlds. Like, oh, people crave real stories. And sometimes I have questions about what that means. <laughs> I have huge questions about what that means. I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers is Almodovar. And he's just like so over the top and yeah. unrealistic. Kind of surreal. Yeah, it's like, why does making something look like a documentary have the market cornered on truth? You know, why is it more realistic, authentic, if it feels like a documentary? It's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, Shakespeare's not very realistic at all, but he conveys the most basic and elaborate stories of, you know, that, that humans have ever mm-hmm. experienced or told. So do you think we need to like go back to roots, like go back to base education when it comes to, I guess, I mean, I'm trying to art and consuming media. Well, I, you know, recently I've been thinking a lot about like my very favorite painters 
are impressionists or cubists or the, you know, I mean, I love absurdism. Like, I think that surrealism, I mean, Dali is my hero Mm -hmm. or or Frida. It's like that. She blows my mind in the way that she would take a true idea and just, and turn it to something else and tell me the story through, you know, an absurdist view. You know, for for instance, it comes back to the language thing where we're talking about, like, you know, we have a word for bed, and every English speaker says bed, and there's an we have an idea ish of what a bed is, but then um, Van Gogh is like, no, here's my version of a bed, you know, and it's completely distorted, and we see we see it, and we recognize a bed there, but it's very distorted, and so and you know we can do the same thing with cinema, like really it's. Um, I think that we're kind of fooling ourselves and thinking that we're making reality. You know, uh, Chivo Lubezki, really famous cinematographer, and he's he said this thing once about, you know, he's like, you have a chair, and how do you light it and photograph it in a way that it, it can convey the truth of what that object is? You know, and it's like, you can't. As soon as you turn on a light, you've said something about that chair. You know, you turn on a light from behind it or from the side or front, it, like, says something completely different, and you know, yes, literally, you're still feeling associated with the chair though. Yeah. I mean, you're still just seeing a chair and, and, you know, and that, that of course translates also to human faces and landscapes and that sort of thing. It's like, you know, a chair is mm-hmm. just a very basic thing because there's no real innate, um, spirit to a, a chair. It's a very neutral. Yeah. Object. It's a neutral object. Yeah. But then it's like, you apply it to everything and it, it doesn't really, uh, yeah, it's like, it changes no matter where you put the camera, no matter where you put the lights, you're still saying something about that object. And I think that that, I think that we've kind of gotten away from that, that we should be more impressionistic because there's so many more options. There's so many things that you can offer as a storyteller, you know, to your audience. If you can, if you can use those, those tools. I would love to talk about, um, what you're going through right now. I would love to just Oh yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I would, if you're, if you're, if you're comfortable or want to go there because we've gotten up to where you're like 33 and if you're able to like kind of, you know, you, you turned a page, you you started a new chapter when you turned 33 and you came out and I, I, I can't imagine what that must've been like for you. Um, and, uh, for whatever you're willing to share, I would be very interested in knowing how that process like informed where you're at now, not just artistically and in all ways, you know, and how that informs you as a cinematographer and you as yeah. a creative and you as an artist. Yeah. I, um, I think, I mean, in the last five years where I've been myself and people or people outwardly knew who I was, um, people have started searching me out, like what kind of a person I am has become appealing to some people as far as like a storyteller. It's not just, I mean, obviously like my real, just like my, you know, like mm-hmm. film portfolio. Yeah. It's like, Oh, she knows how to tell a story. She did a really good job at telling this story. Maybe she'd be good at telling my story. But then when I talk to people, like that's a big part of it. It's like, okay, what kind of person are you? Yeah. I also get the opportunity to tell stories that have that kind of element, you know, 
queer stories or trans stories or, you know, I recently got an agent in Spain, you know, and so I'm like, cause I'm like in that world, it's like, oh, and I'm, I mean, I'm the only American on the roster. I'm the thir- only the third woman on the whole roster. Yeah. It's like just having all those things kind of like, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Would love to have a person with that perspective, yeah. you know, because it's very, it's unique. Mm-hmm. Well, being American is unique in Spain, but not <laughs> in Spain. You're not in America. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's a new thing that I'm trying to navigate where it's like, oh, me as a person and my personal experiences are important. People are searching it out. I think that the world has changed a bit too. The film world has changed a bit where people are now actually searching out for, I'm going to say diversity, but really, but searching yeah. for people with different it's, views It's kind of been the, the first world. step though. I mean, in order to get more representation, it's almost like people, it's like companies and some of them are still in like the token phase, uh-huh. right? But then there's the step after that. After you start thinking about representation and diversity, then it becomes more natural and it becomes more like a part of the story because yeah. it, it is, that is just life. That is, that is how the world is and that should be seen. Well, do you know, at first, when I, when I first changed my name and people started to know more, you know, oh, we're hiring Bianca or hiring a woman that they would, um, I felt a little bit guilty because people would be like, oh, we want a female cinematographer. And I felt kind of like, I'm brand new here. Like I just became a woman to the world, you know? And um, and so I don't really have that same perspective. And then eventually I realized, I'm like, oh, I have even more. Mm-hmm. I, feel like, I felt like I hadn't earned it. You know, I hadn't gone through enough misogyny or something, oh. you know, to have that like, title. Oh, I had um, male privilege for a while, quote uh-huh. unquote. Was I, yeah. yeah, I see. But then the more that I thought about it and the more that I lived as myself, I realized what kind of hellish world I went through before. Yeah. Just I... being trans and in the closet was like, it taught me so much. It's not fun. I would never recommend it. <laughs> but it was, um I think yeah, you I had to work for, for your womanhood, which I think is very, very beautiful. And that is, and that is, I'm very aware are. of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean that, that definitely did play into, uh, the third love ad, right? Cause it's a yeah. bra, it's a bra company, you know, we're trying to speak to women and we wanted a mostly female crew and uh-huh. you know, you were the DP on that shoot and all I was the director and I was the creative director and it was a mostly female crew and that was really cool. It was, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was, well, and I thought about it, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, on that commercial, I was like, oh yeah, I'm like, I, I lived a lot of my life not wearing a bra and now I do. And so it's like all fairly, um, I don't know. I just come at it with a different perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, I interviewed and got a, this film about periods for, um, you know, it's like they were going to, they're going to do all female crew. And I'm like, first thing I told them was like, I haven't really ever had a period. I've had a lot of vagina, uh, blood come out of my vagina, but I haven't actually had a period. And so, and they were like actually thrilled about it. It was like, Oh, that's a new thing. They're like, that's a totally different perspective. It's like, you're a woman and you're in this world of women, but you have a different perspective from it. What did you, through that process, what did you have to unlearn to get to where you are? Or yeah. What what did you kind of have to be like, wait a second. That okay, well, I'm still working on it. Yeah. I'm still working on, I mean, I, maybe well. Maybe it's relearning because it's really like replacing the idea, you know, semantics. But, but, but that's yeah. the idea. Like, what did you have to reclaim, unlearn, or? Well, I, you know, I, 
I had to unlearn all of the things that I had used to survive. Like I had always, like as a trans person, like I learned pretty early on, like what things drew attention to myself, what things drew attention of like either being trans or just different or, you know, being feminine was, a, you know, a, a red flag or, or a, a green light for people to bully me or abuse me or, you know, and so I would learn how to be masculine enough, at least, you know, it just wasn't in my nature per se, but I was enough to not draw attention, mm -hmm. which was always bad. As a trans person, attention was always bad, yeah. which is something a lot of people don't, they think that we're like, want attention. And, you know, we're like, like, no, that's the last thing most trans people want is, you know, mm -hmm. want to just disappear into the background. Um, and so I had to unlearn a lot of those things wasn't too difficult for me because I've constantly been changing throughout my life. Not, I mean, it, I've been changing my gender and gender presentation, you know, in the last, um, decade, but, um, but I've always like changed cultures. I've always changed like jobs. I always change places, you know, just mm -hmm. constantly traveling as an artist. What was your connection to Russia? I'm not sure we got Oh, my that. wife is from Russia. That's right. Who's legally my wife, my ex-wife, mm -hmm. we don't, we've been separated for five years. So I've, you know, spent a lot of time over there, ended up shooting a lot of projects over there. Um, and just kind of generally search out like Russia just feels like my people. So I just dove into the language. I have a lot of Russian friends, I do a lot of Russian projects. And it's just, I think it's just like, it's like, it's learning a new thing, a new culture. It's like a whole new world. You know, even though we're all humans, we all live on the same planet. It's just like things function a little bit differently and they mm -hmm. see the world from a different perspective. And it just feels like being human again. It's like I get to be a human again when I talk to trans yeah. people or and when, when I, I go to Spain language. and when I go to Russia. And yeah, it's like all these things are like, it's like, oh, I'm, I am, I am multiple people, not in a split yeah. personality way, but I'm, I am multiple people. There's yeah. Russian Bianca, there's Spanish Bianca, there's Italian Bianca, you know, there's all these different, you know, I can, mm -hmm. I can move in and out of different worlds in a really, a lovely way. Yeah. That, or at least it's very lovely to me. Well, and you've reached a point of acceptance where it's no longer like dissonance or conflict that all those different Biancas are causing. Now yeah. it's all of these Biancas are me, you know, and it's yeah. all, but it's all, I can, uh, yeah, it's, it, they're different aspects of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. Because it makes sense that different people in different experiences would bring out different aspects of your humanity. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, it's quite extreme. So it's a little bit easier to notice it in my life. You know, like, uh, like switching languages is a bit easier to notice. Like, oh, you're doing things differently. Mm -hmm. um, going to another country and fitting in with those people. You know, it's very easy, you know, but I can also... I understand the way that men live. And I understand the way that women live, you know? So like being trans has helped me understand those differences in a much more extreme version than most people get the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, that's kind of interesting to say that like opportunity. And so it's like, it's a very positive spin on the being trans. Mm -hmm. they just do a real, I, I mean, in general, it's very painful, but, but, but there are good you turned it into, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think I would make a great marriage counselor. I'm a great, I'm a great interpreter. Yeah. I Translator. See. Mm -hmm. And that's a theme both in your life personally and in behind the camera. Yeah. Interpreter. 
That's yeah, really I see myself as an interpreter. I put that on my website. Like, I never had an about page on my website because I was like, I don't want anybody to know about me because I'm nuts. And, or, or, or that I wasn't being very authentic. You know, I wasn't really truthful in my presentation of myself. So now after like coming out, transitioning, etc., like I put it on there and I put, I'm like, I'm a mother, I'm a cinematographer, I'm a, you know, an interpreter. And I, and I, and I, I think that, that that's what my job is as an artist is being an interpreter, an interpreter of ideas. Right. And I just, I use the camera instead of words. How do you define success as an artist? Okay, I'll tell you this. <laughs> a few days ago, I was shooting a commercial, and the we were I was lighting and getting the camera set up, and the um, the director said, "Bianca, are we happy?" Oh, yeah, and I, and I was like, mm, you know, kind of made a, <laughs> a so-so <laughs> face, and a, and he was like, "Oh, come on, Bianca, aren't you happy? It looks great." And I was like, and I said, "I'll be happy when they hand me a little gold statue." <laughs> <laughs> Right. I just don't know that. I don't know that being satisfied or happy yeah. with my my art is maybe productive. Mm. I'm like because when I go on the set or or when I'm in pre production, I'm like my my thought is constantly, how do I make this better? How do I how do I tell the story? And I I really only relent when the AD says, we're moving on. We need to go. We need to shoot. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm going to light and light and tweak and make this better until they say, let's go. Mm -hmm. Or the sun's going down or, you know, or coming mm -hmm. up. Um, so it's just in my mindset that like, it's never good enough. I'm never satisfied. I'm never mm -hmm. happy. So I don't really know the answer to that. Like what success, and I might be setting myself up to never be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that for me, the journey is the success. Like the fact that I get to make movies for a living, they pay me to make movies is great. And I get to work with great people and yeah. really talented artists. And I think that that's, to me, that's success. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think that's very valid. I think that I, I think I would look at it similarly because I am also never satisfied with anything I ever make <laughs> ever. Um, yeah, but I, I, I wouldn't want to define success though to be just a source of outcomes because then I think that is setting mm -hmm. yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, I think some people have like goals, you know, it's like, oh, I want to win an Oscar, I want to win a BAFTA, I want to win, mm -hmm. you know, I want to get into the ASC or, yeah. you know, getting into the union. And I guess that a lot of those are steps, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, that's great. But to me, I'd much rather. That's not how uh, you would define success. No, I would yeah. much rather be. I'd rather be unsatisfied, yeah, you know, and like eventually, and just wish. I think that that will just push me to do better work. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, to me, it's when a movie comes out and somebody's touched by it. I generally don't believe them, but I'm still like. <laughs> but thank you I so much say, for I the love, kind words. Yeah, oh, I love <laughs> that film that you did, and it touched me, and I love this oh. and that, and I'm like, well, you're just being kind, but I. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm glad it touched you in some way. What would you, what would you tell old Bianca? What would you tell a You mean like 80-year-old Bianca or Bianca I, 20 years ago? I even maybe 14-year-old Bianca who realized she wanted to be a filmmaker. What do you wish she had known? Like if you basically the purpose of this question is for all the creatives and artists listening to this 
I think everyone should drop the aspiring part of, mm-hmm. of artist. I think everyone should just drop that because I just don't think that's what it's about. Yeah. Um, or and that is or we would, add it to everyone because I still think I'm an, I'm an aspiring artist. Yeah, sure, sure. Or, or yeah, I guess I, I I'm, think I can I'm see that. I'm aspiring to be Roger Deakins. Oh, right. <laughs> amen. Oh uh, yeah, oh uh, yeah. I, I know, I know that. I mean, a decade ago, I would have called myself an aspiring artist. Even now, I have a hard time honestly claiming any identity with the word artist. But I, I like, I, I, I can't fathom doing anything not creative. I can't fathom fathom it. So I'm like, okay, well, it's this or it's this. This is this is this is what I'm going to try to do until I can't yeah. anymore. Like I just know that that's that's it for me. Um and I'm at peace with that, but uh I almost kind of wish I could have told, you know, Pat like I I wish I could have told old Mandy that it is totally fine to experiment. It's totally fine to try. It's totally fine to fail. You know, I wish that that is something that I had understood a lot earlier because I don't think, I think I'm still under trying to understand that. Um, so what, I guess, parting advice would you give to old Bianca slash our listeners? I, okay. You know, I, I was, I, I wonder that about myself. Like what could I, what could I have told myself when I was 14 or 20 or 30? Is there anything you could have said? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I could have, like, I think that what's really important is the journey. And I know that sounds kind of trite. It's like, oh, just, just do it and enjoy. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know that I could have changed. I mean, I want to say to myself, like this path you're on is just not going to work. So don't, you know, believe me, I've I did it. It's not Mm -hmm. good. Just, you know, be yourself. Um, I think that, you know, I think it's Oscar Wilde said, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's really good advice as an artist, like, I don't think, you know, I say I aspire to be Roger Deakins, but I don't really want to yeah. be, I don't want to be exactly I like, I mean, you aspire to be yeah. Bianca and you are her. Yeah, yeah. I do. Right. <laughs> I do aspire to be Bianca. I aspire to be a really good version of Bianca. Yeah. Like she could be really great. Yeah. And so I work on it every day. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't think that you can. Okay. Here's something I heard, you know, I was with a DP like 20 years ago. I was an, an assistant camera person. And, um, somebody asked him like what they were trying to describe a scene and they said, how would you light this? And he was like, well, I could tell you how I might light it, but that's not how you should light it. Like you should light it the way that you see the film, you know, Mm -hmm. and that, I think that that's, that's everything that encapsulates art. Like it's what's important is how you see the world. Like, what do you see? this scene as like what do you see because you're really putting you're putting the audience in your brain you're you're letting the audience experience the world according to whoever you are that's a very vulnerable experience it is very vulnerable and if you're not vulnerable as an artist you're gonna fail yeah maybe that's some advice (laughs) you really have to be vulnerable or you're gonna you're not gonna you're not gonna do well you won't do well because it's not a paint by numbers art. Yeah. <laughs> because paint by numbers is kind of art. But that, you're painting by numbers. It's like that's just creating. You're just making something. But you're not. That's yeah. not what's important. Mm-hmm. That isn't creating something that is filling in something. But it's not. Yeah. You yeah. have to have something important to say. And, and then you just have to figure out how to say it. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy. Do you know the game Othello? Mm-mm. it's really easy it's kind of like but it's just like black and white tiles you turn them over 
one way or the other. And their, their slogan on the box is a minute to learn a lifetime to master. Mm. It's kind of like chess or, you know, it's like, it's not that long. It doesn't take that long to learn how the game functions. And, you know, you can learn, I used to teach cinematography at BYU and I was uh, like, what I really tried to drill into to the students was like, you, it's really easy to learn how to turn on lights. You can figure out how to use a camera in, you know, an hour. None of these things are very difficult and that's not why people are going to hire you. People want you to make their film because of what you have to say, like what kind of a person you are, like what, what creativity do you bring to that project? Like, it's like, it's how you're telling that story. Not that you just know how, like, I think that a lot of producers, especially, but even directors are often think, oh, this DP, like they know how to tell the story. They know how all the technical and they make the image look great, but that's not really like what makes a cinematographer or cinematography special. It's what do you have to say? Like, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. You know, that makes, that makes, that makes you special. I think that's beautiful. Thanks. What What are you up to now? What, what Where are you at now? What um, I know you split time between LA and here. You kind of also yeah. go all over the place. You've got You've got some feature work coming up. Is there any? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a new movie coming out. Um, I don't know when. It just premiered at Telluride. It's called Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. It's a feature film of these shorts that were made. And, um, yeah, it's getting a lot of excitement and, but it's, it's a really great movie. I don't know when it'll come out, hopefully in the next six months. Um, yeah, I have a feature documentary on Netflix and a bunch of other ones coming out and I'm working on, I just been doing a lot of commercials, like a lot of, I mean, a lot of films and commercials kind of got, or projects got stalled because of pandemic. And so now they're trying to, it's regrouping and. I don't Did know. Did it shoot up in busyness? Like everyone wants to oh shoot something gosh, now, right? Oh my gosh, it's so busy. Yeah. yeah it's so yeah. crazy busy. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. yeah, here's a, a thing I'll, I'll tell you. Um, somebody, um, yeah, somebody in my life died recently on set, a cinematographer. And one of the things that it's really like put, um, into perspective for me is that art is important. Like if I get to the end of my life, this would be a definition of unsuccessful life. If I got to the end of my life and people said, Oh, she made some great commercials. She made, um, she made a lot of money. I would be so disappointed. I would feel awful. Like I just, I can't leave this world not doing art. Like I need to leave my imprint that way. Like, Mm-hmm. Money is good for helping my kids, you know, survive kind and go to school and all of that thing, you know? So I need, I need to make money and I'm not, I'm not ungrateful. I'm very yeah. grateful that I get to make money doing what I love. Um, but I think that really my, my end goal mm-hmm. in success is making art. Mm-hmm. If I can make art, that that would be important. And I need to turn down money in order to make art, I think. I, I do kind of want to hear that that story um, that you told me before the podcast because yeah. I, I do that that is kind of not not at the risk of being sensational. That's not that's not what I'm trying to do, but um, I, I think that that kind of experience could really it's a little harrowing. It can kind of you know rack you to your core. I know you you opened up to me right before this podcast that it 
her role well, was potentially your role. You yeah. guys both bid for the exact same project. Yeah. She didn't, I didn't, I never actually met Helena. Mm-hmm. She and I were at the same agency. Um, and the, the director wanted to hire, uh, he wanted a female cinematographer. I think he never told me, but he wanted to hire someone who was the um, kind of a new perspective, right? It's like Mm -hmm. Westerns are usually so macho, like pretty much, I don't even, I read the script. I don't think there was more than two women in the whole film. You know, it's a very macho male film. And so I thought it was a really great idea that he wanted to hire a woman because it would just give you that balanced Mm -hmm. perspective, right? How to shoot that film. Um, I was interviewing for it. I was really excited about the film because it was really great. Alec Baldwin, a Western, and um, I ended up not getting the film. Like the director hired Helena. What my agent, my agent called me and told me, she was like, oh, Helena got the film instead of you. And she and some other friends who all know her, like, because we run in the same circle, we all know all the same people. They were like, oh, Helena's wonderful. She's a really great DP. Don't drive yourself crazy by talking to her or, you know, looking at her work or anything. Cause you'll just go crazy. Just yeah. move on. And so I did like, I ignored her for three months, which like I deeply regret now because now everybody's like, Oh yeah, of course you guys would be great friends. <laughs> you know, all the Russian and, you know, being mm-hmm. the same age and cinematographers and, um, and the fact that we have a lot of friends in common, it's like, Oh I, I, I learned about the film or, or about her death from an email that the camera union sent out and it said it was really simple and it was the first day. So they didn't really know a lot of details. It just said, Helena Hutchins, DP of Rust has been killed on set. And it was like reading my own obituary. Like if you just lifted her name out and put mine in, it was like, oh, that was like so destined to be me. And it, it broke my brain. I don't really know what to do with it. Like, it's like, I think I was supposed to die and she died in my place. And it's not a great feeling to have. And, you know. Why do you think that? Why do I think that she died in my place? Because it could have gone the other way so easily. I mean, it so easily could have been. I was interviewing, and so if it yeah. so easily could have been me. He could have just said, oh, yeah, I totally want Bianca. Yeah. And then I would have been there. And it's really made me rethink a lot of things. Um, I think that the way that she approached cinematography, I can really want to adopt. And I think it's one of the reasons that she got the film instead of me. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it also just made me realize, like, I need to be doing art. Like, art is much more important to me than making money. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to make money, I would just become a doctor or something, you know. I would get into real estate. Like, I don't need, like, filmmaking is a really rough life, you know really long hours you don't know where your money's coming from you know not being on the road as a cinematographer you know I'm on the road for a lot of the time I don't get to see my kids as much as I can and if it's like oh you're just making money 
It's not, that's um, not, the it's not fulfilling for me at all. Yeah. The trade-off should be, I get to make great art. It should be that I get to change the world yeah. for the better. Otherwise. What's the sacrifice for? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, along, along with Helena's death, I, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about death because I've had a lot of friends die. And so I was used to that, like how that works. A lot of filmmaking friends specifically or um, just in general? Just, just in general. Yeah. Some filmmakers, some not. Um, but just ever since I was little, I've had a lot of, I've had friends die and I, I knew what to do with that grief. This grief, I didn't know what to do with. And something that I learned just thinking about all the times people have died, all the things that have happened is that whenever somebody dies or something, anything traumatic happens in your life. I don't think that you ever get over it. You don't ever, the pain doesn't ever go away. It's just that you learn how to make mold yourself into a person that has that grief, mm -hmm. has that trauma. Yeah. Like you, you know, a filmmaker friend of mine killed himself 10 years ago. And I started thinking about him a lot after Helena died. I'm like, Oh, what did I do? Because I was distraught when he died. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where, you know, how do I mentally deal with this? And I, um, and I realized like, I feel just as sad that he's gone. I feel just as hurt, traumatized, you know, that he was that sad and that all the things surrounding it, you know, that, that he felt like he couldn't stay, etc. I feel those just as strongly today as I did the day he died, I just, um, I just know what to do with them. It's just yeah. part of me now. And so now that this happened with Helena, I feel like it's just going to become part of me. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult now and I'm grieving and don't know what to do with it. But eventually it will just become part of who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, the same way that all the other experiences of my life have made me who I am, you know, painful or wonderful. They're mm -hmm. all, they all, they all become an accumulation of who I am. Mm -hmm. They're the, you know, I am not one thing. I'm the amalgamation of, of all those things. All the Biancas. All the Biancas. Yeah. I think that a lot of tra trans people try to get rid of the person they were before or the person they yeah. lived as at least, you know, mm -hmm. get rid of pictures, get rid of, and it's all valid yeah. because trans people are often hurting and, yeah. you know, in a bad place. But uh, to me, I feel like, no, that was me. Like I was Travis for a long while and now I'm a better version of me. And that, that better version is called Bianca. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you used your name because, or, or, or yeah, we'll mention your old name because not most trans people I know don't because that's, that's not even the life that, that they yeah. felt like that they chose. And so, you know, they want to leave that behind, which, which is totally. also understandable. But I, I find your perspective also very interesting. Well, I actually kept it as my middle name. I actually tried to be a girl named Travis for a while and it didn't work very well. Was it, you were showing up to sad. I know that. Uh, yeah. People, I would show up yeah. to sad and people were like, oh, we thought Travis was a guy. <laughs> Sorry. I would, um, like the IRS wouldn't believe me. Like nobody, oh, it's like, no. I'm it like, became like bureaucratic nonsense. Oh yeah. It was oh. a really hard problem. And I always, I mean, I loved the name Bianca, yeah. so it was yeah, great. great, but name. it, um, it fits, I think too. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. part of me. Yeah. It's part, everything is part of me. Mm -hmm. Bianca, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure. Today. I really, I loved this conversation. With it was you. really fun to talk about art. I appreciate your vulnerability, your insights, your stories. I think 
they're very valuable and very unique. You really do have, I mean, never, I mean, sure, everyone has a unique perspective. Yes, but there is no perspective like Bianca clients. And so I really appreciate you sharing that perspective with us today. Thanks. Thank you. To keep up with Artbreakers, follow us at Artbreakers Podcast on Instagram and check out the show notes at artbreakerspodcast.com. Episodes release weekly on Tuesday and there's so much more to come. In the words of comedian and cartoonist Dimitri Martin, Earth without art would just be it. Thank you for tuning in to Art Breakers.